0: The following presentation is brought to you by Perusia. Please stay tuned at the end for more information about the many fine resources available from Perusia. I'm talking on a topic which first probably came to my mind somewhere in the year 2006 when I was at University Chaplaincy at University of Sydney. And a book was published at this time by a very conservative American politician named Pat Buchanan. Some of you might have heard of him. He ran for the presidency of the United States at one time. Not very successfully, but nevertheless, he was a staunch Catholic politician who did a lot of good in America. And he brought out a book in 2006 called The Death of the West. And he projected that from that time, 2006, until the year 2100, which is now 80 years away, that the the white population of the planet Earth will diminish to only 2% of the world's population. Now, it wasn't a book based on race. He wasn't concerned about whites diminishing as a percentage of the world's population. He was concerned about why that was going to happen. What processes are in place then and accelerating now that will lead that we're leading and are leading the West towards basically extinction. So this talk this afternoon or this morning, sorry, is based on that initial concept. The decline of the West you know vis-a-vis population. Now when we think about the Roman Empire and the fall of the Roman Empire, some of us might remember some vague details about barbarians and burning Rome, etc. And that's true. Um, The Roman Empire fell in the fifth century, but it wasn't knocked out in one hit. In fact, really, when you look at the decline of the Roman Empire, it was over centuries. These barbarian hits came at a time when Rome was teetering in any case, and I'll explain why very soon. When we talk about uh, the Roman Empire falling, we talk about it falling in the West and we think about, you know, the the sacking of Rome in the year 410 uh, by the Visigoths. And the Visigoths under Alaric came, actually they entered the Roman Empire quite a few years earlier. On the 1st of January, 405, the Visigoths crossed the Rhine River into Gaul. Five years later, 24th to the 26th of August, 410, they finally made their way towards Rome and they spent three days sacking the city, pillaging, etc. That was the first time in 800 years since the late 4th century BC, when the Gauls sacked Rome, that Rome had been attacked and overwhelmed. That was the first of three sackings. The second sacking was in the year 455, in June, and it was a two-week sacking by a tribe called the Vandals under Genseric. And that's where we get the term in English, vandalism. If you engage in vandalism, you behave like the vandals did in that two-week period in June 455. The final knockout blow was in AD 476. But in the interim, throughout the 5th century, you're getting hordes of different tribes pouring into Western Europe. I'll name them. Angles, Saxons, Franks. Ostrogoths, that's Eastern Gothic, as against Visigoths, Western Gothic. Lombards, they are ravaging the Western Empire, the British Isles, and they are carving out their own territories. Before the sacking in 410, barbarians were entering into the Roman Empire, but they were, uh, it was a formalized process where they were given what was called federated status. They are allowed to pour in as tribes sometimes in their millions, and occupy a certain region of the empire, but accepting Roman rule and just being you know, in, in integrated slowly into the population and authority of the Roman Empire. On the 4th of September, 476 AD, the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, who was only aged 14 years, was deposed by the Ostrogoth Austra- Odoacer. And that formally ended the Roman Empire in the West. And for most of us who don't know their history very well uh, and don't know about the Byzantine Empire and how it survived another thousand years, people think, well, that was the end of the Roman Empire. And again, when we think about the Roman Empire, often... What comes to mind, I remember reflecting on what my own knowledge was when I was growing up in high school, etc., why the Roman Empire came to an end, and basically it was because they became corrupt. The people in the Roman Empire became corrupt, and that's why it fell. Well, that's more than a simplistic view of things. In fact, it's probably a radically ahistorical and wrong way of viewing the fall of the Roman Empire. Because from the point of view of our faith, Christianity, Catholicism, the peoples of the Roman Empire from its very beginning were always corrupt. So what was different in the 5th century as against, for example, the 2nd century AD or the 1st century AD or when the Roman Empire was really rising in the 2nd century BC? And as I just hinted earlier, the Roman Empire in the east didn't corrupt sorry didn't collapse it remained until the 15th century in one form or another you know known as the byzantine empire and only formally completely fell with the sacking of constantinople by the ottomans in the year 1453. So why did one half of the empire fall and the other half of the empire did not fall And you've got to also remember, is corruption really the reason why it decayed? You know, when really about 30% of the population by the uh, uh, early 4th century, uh, a century before these sackings, had become Christian. So I would argue in certain senses, the population of the Roman Empire was actually morally improving. But generally... The reason why the Western Empire fell and the Eastern Empire did not fall was depopulation. And the depopulation resulted in Rome's now inability to raise the armies necessary to check the migrations and the invasions of these barbarian tribes. That is, put it simplistically, the core reason why the Western Empire fell. They just could not any longer uh, raise the armies. They did not have the manpower to staff the armies necessary to to keep the Rhine and the Danubian frontiers secure. But depopulation didn't happen suddenly. Depopulation was a slow process. And from what we can guess, because there are different figures here, Around the year 180 AD, the Roman Empire was populated around 80 million people. 200 years later, say the late 4th century AD, the population of the Empire had dropped to 60 million. It was a slow decline over two centuries. And Why why was this decline occurring? Well, the first reason was urbanisation a lot of people were moving away from the countryside, from the farms to the larger cities and are being concentrated in in small apartments, small residences, and they were not engaged in productive activities to to a large extent, and generally they fell into... They were no longer interested or no longer capable of uh, raising larger families. And of course, this is combined, the economic conditions combined with the general sexual promiscuity which accelerated the population decline. Now, does does this in any way sound familiar? (laughs) All right? We've only just started. That's why we have the subtitle, The Roman Empire Revisited. You're getting it now. The sexual immorality or promiscuity manifested itself in certain ways noticeable to the Christians. Now to become a Christian at this time in these centuries was not just becoming a change in your name. It wasn't something nominal. When you became a Christian there was a radical conversion and you had a change of lifestyle. So the Christian apologists at this time were very much aware of uh, making that contrast to what we were like before and now that we're followers of Christ what we're like now. And they highlight the evils of of pagan culture, civilization, so to speak. So I'll quote you, I'll give you two quotes, and there are quite a few quotes here, but these are two that stand out, particularly the second one. Clement of Alexandria ran the um, catechetical school in northern Egypt at this time, and around the year 200 he produced a work called the Pedagogus. And he said the following women who resort to some sort of deadly abortion drug kill not only the embryo but along with it all human kindness. So it's quite obvious that abortion was practiced and medical uh, interventions were used to facilitate abortions at this time. Now this is a general comment. He's not singling out any particular type of group or race or religion. He's commenting on a phenomenon which would have been standard practice in the empire at that time and for centuries beforehand. Saint Hippolytus Hippolytus in Rome eh, around the year 228 wrote the following about unmarried women, including some who were reputedly Christian, said the following in his work, Refutation of All Heresies. Quote, whence women... Reputed believers began to resort to drugs for producing sterility and to gird themselves round so to expel what was being conceived on account of their not wishing to have a child, either by a slave or by any paltry fellow. For the sake of their family and excessive wealth, Behold, into how great impiety that lawless one has proceeded by inculcating adultery and murder at the same time. And withal, after such audacious acts, they lost to all shame attempt to call themselves a Catholic Church. So, this is a severe critique about women, including women, Christian women, who have. Are, either practice adultery or fornication, and they've probably done it with a slave or whatever, and they're pregnant, and so they want to get rid of that baby. So again, we're seeing contraception and abortive practices normative in the culture of that time. Added to that, we had the phenomenon of infanticide in the Roman Empire. And I'll refer you now to a non-Christian writer and this name you would have all heard, Cicero and he's writing sometime in the first century B.C. He says the following in his work on the laws Quote, Deformed infants shall be killed Deformed infants shall be killed, remember that? Now, the deformity could be an unwanted child that's a deformity. I just don't want the child. They are exposite. The word in Latin, exposite, means they are exposed. They are left out into the countryside to be uh, to the, subject to the elements, left without shelter. So when you ever read a term, they expose their children, that means they just left them outside to die. No food, no drink, no clothing, no shelter, etc. A deformed child, a sickly child or simply a child of the wrong wrong sex will be subject to this type of practice. Then we have another writer, the Stoic philosopher Seneca and he wrote sometime in the first half of the first century AD in his work on anger, he says the following, Quote, Mad dogs we knock on the head. Unnatural proge- progeny we destroy. We drown even children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. Now, as these are matter-of-fact statements. And there's no decrying of this activity. This is just what we do. It's normative in the culture of that time. Now, the African Christian apologist, a Tertullian would write that Christians would actually go to garbage tips and dung heaps and they'll rescue these children. If they're already dead on the verge of death and they die, the Christians would have given them burials, dignified burials. If they are still alive and viable, Christian families often just adopted the child, took them in and, and raised them as their own. Now does this again sound familiar, these type of practices? And we shouldn't be surprised the book of ecclesiastes or the book of ecclesiastes sorry uh, chapter 1 verse 9 says the following there is nothing new under the sun Now when you hear the term progressive today get let your warning you know bells sound and the red lights flash because there's no such thing as progressive really We are when you hear progressive just substitute the word regressive because in actual fact, we're not heading forward, we're heading backwards. So when we as a society just lock, stock and barrel, take up a, in, in, in contraceptive practices... Uh, abortion practices, infanticidal practices and people are out there saying look these are all progressive developments, you know, we're a democracy, we we have our freedoms, people are free to do whatever they want, it's their choice. Nothing's progressive here, we're heading backwards. So when you have someone like this philosopher Peter Singer, a merchant of death, co-founded the Greens party here in Australia by the way with Bob Brown. Uh, who has a chair, professor's chair at Princeton University, even, even though he has nothing more than a bachelor's degree, right, says the following. In, in our book, Should the Baby Live, I suggested that a period of 28 days after birth might be allowed before an infant is accepted as having the same right to life as others. This is clearly well before the infant could have a sense of its own existence over time and would allow a couple to decide that it is better not to continue with a life that has begun very badly. Now, he's writing in another book called Rethinking Life and Death. He brought this out in 1993 and in this paragraph I just read, he's reflecting about arguments he raised in that other book, Should the Baby Live. Now, what is the difference between what Peter Singer says in this book to what Seneca and Cicero said about the culture and practices in the Roman Empire, 1st century BC and 1st century AD? No difference whatsoever. If a child is sickly, if a child is deformed, it's better to put it to death. Why? Because we don't love anymore. Because to love requires unselfishness denial of ourselves and when we are selfish when we practice when we exist just to be hedonistic life is about eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you die I don't want to have these burdens so let's you know tell ourselves it's okay to practice infanticide because we're putting the child out of its misery when all all you're doing really is putting the yourself out of your own misery because you are too miserable to love outside of yourself now, do a bit of political commentary here, but this is not to show my political inclinations, but fact. In the 1990s, there was legislation put, proposed to be put through the US Congress to ban partial birth abortion. You know, abortion at nine months, which in, a se- in essence is abortion, but really it's infanticide. I mean, all abortion is a form of infanticide. Okay. Now, at nine months, I think all of us in this room have enough common sense to know that the child is inherently viable. Okay, and during the days of the Clinton administration, 1993 to 2000 in the United States, it was proposed to pass laws through Congress to ban this practice, and Congress passed such a law, only to be vetoed by Bill Clinton. And again, during the Obama administration, the same thing happened. But it gets worse when even children survive attempted abortions and they are outside of the womb and they are alive and they're viable. These type of politicians demand that that child is to be starved to death. And again, this is so current, February 2019, 42 current Democratic Senators refused to give consent to vote on the Born Alive Survivors Protection Act. So this is a piece of legislation specifically targeted now. The other legislation was about banning partial birth abortion, but this is now about protecting kids Children who have been born, they're still alive, they survived an abortion, an attempted abortion. So the Born Alive Survivors Protection Act, 42 current Democratic senators, those elected in November 2018, many of them, they refused point blank in February last year to consent to vote on such a piece of legislation in the Senate effectively supporting the starvation of newly born children, effectively supporting infanticide. That's in the Senate. In the House, House Democrats 74 times have refused to vote on the same legislation. Supported, and I'll say it, by the current so-called Catholic Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. So Nancy Pelosi is too busy trying to um, impeach presidents who are pro-life and condemn to death innocents who have survived abortion. And she'll go and receive communion and call herself a good Catholic. And we're supposed to accept that. Now, I'm talking about the death of the West, but there are certainly, certainly some countries that are not we wouldn't classify as Western, but they are certainly plagued by these evils and to a greater extent than we are. In India, there are 16 million missing girls because of infanticide on the basis of gender selection. You're a girl, we want a boy. Sorry, next. Gone. In China, the ratio of boys to girls is 131 to 100. For every 100 girls, the 135 males being born. Why? Genocide, infanticide in the form of gendercide. Today we are the Roman Empire revisited, but we do it better, with better science, better medicine, and better technology. Now, the Roman Empire declined slowly over centuries in population, making it vulnerable to invasion and being overwhelmed. What are the birth rates now in certain significant Western countries? The United States, birth rate is 1.8 and declining. Further, Britain, 1.75. France, 1.85. Germany, 1.6. Japan 1.4 Italy 1.3 Russia 1.8 Australia 1.83 What do we need as a birth rate for the population to remain stable? 2.2 None of these countries are going to remain stable in their population and if certain of these countries are growing in numbers just the gross numbers of their peoples, like the United States and Australia, it's because of something called large-scale immigration, which is what the Roman Empire was practising throughout the 4th century by allowing certain barbarian tribes to enter peacefully into the empire and be given federated status before they're overwhelmed. If we didn't have immigration into Australia, we'll be in free-fall population decline and everything that comes with that, economic decline, stagnation, etc. Some of these countries, particularly France that I mentioned, when, let's go back to France's stat here. In France, its birth rate is 1.85, which of this list is the highest. Maybe France isn't doing that bad, but don't forget, they have 7 million Muslims of, with a, a birth rate much higher than 1.85. So that one eight, 1.85 has been propped up by a, a culture, a religion that is going to overturn the essence of what France was as a Catholic nation. In other words, in the same process but slower, what happened to the Roman Empire? France will be over Catholic France. What's left of it will be overwhelmed by just an internal growth of another culture, another another civilization. Now let's talk. Let's turn to about marriage and what's happening with marriage per se. I mean, the reality is with marriage, the the current generations of generation X, generation Y, generation or millennium, whatever they label it now, the majority of those young people are not interested in marriage, as we understand it traditionally from the Christian perspective. A one-on-one relationship that's exclusive for life and open to life. Marriage is systematically being destroyed. I mean, when we have a culture that promotes cohabitation, it's a nice word, cohabitation. We used to call it, when I was growing up, living in sin. We used to call it fornication. But our culture now promotes this, and young people see it as normative. You know, I know where I work, in Sydney Catholic Schools Office, which helps to... You know, there's a service agency to all our schools and the 9,500 stuff. I do know anecdotally that the number of our teachers who are young teachers in our system, Catholics, nominally Catholic, and they live in de facto relationships and it's just, for their age group, it's normal, but they are aware that our system demands, you know, you shouldn't be doing that, you should be modelling marriage, etc. And they're keeping it secret. So they keep their jobs. Now, what else? This promotion of cohabitation undermines any desire to commit seriously. We also, of course, long ago, centuries ago, submitted to accepting divorce as a viable option for people who are unhappily married. Adultery is rampant in our culture. I mean... We even have an industry. If you heard of Ashley Madison as a company, we have an industry targeting marriage, promoting adultery to harm and destroy marriage. You might have seen it when you go to the airports. I don't know in recent times, but more than once I would go to the airport to travel somewhere interstate and there it is. You know? No one will know. You only live once. Enjoy yourself while you can. Billboards, contact Ashley Madison Agency and we'll hook you up with someone while you're on your business trip. Don't worry, no one will find out. It's an industry that promotes adultery, harming and destroying marriage. Now again, this is not progressive. All these behaviours were normative in the Roman Empire. Fornication, I mean... We, we see it with a great saint, or a man who became a great saint, with St Augustine. He lived in a de facto relationship with two women two in succession, in one after the other. And they call it common law marriage. Okay, but that's how they shacked up together. Okay? And adultery and divorce were normative. So when we talk about these behaviours as progressive, again, we're lying to ourselves. They're not progressive. They're regressing to an age a civilization, pre-Christian, where unbridled nature ruled over grace. Christianity comes so that grace builds on nature, so that the spirit dominates the flesh, not a civilization where the flesh dominates the spirit. St. John Paul II once said, as the family goes, so goes the nation and so goes the whole world in which we live. That was happening in his time. It's accelerating now. Our civilization is in great crisis because the family is in great crisis. Our church is in great crisis because the family is in great crisis. And the church can have its resistance moments and elements and good people doing good things, etc. But on a broader scale, we're in rapid decline because the family is in rapid decline. For centuries, we campaigned to destroy sacramental marriage, in, in, as we understand it from the point of the Christian perspective. And then we campaigned just as hard to erect pseudo-marriage, same-sex marriages. You have to get your head around this. It's why is this that we're so intent and breaking down heterosexual marriages, sacramental marriages, and then with the same intent, ferocity and determination to erect these other forms of so-called marriage. Because there are diabolical forces here at play. Now, as mentioned in my introduction, I co-founded a small apologetics group at the parish of Belfield, St. Michael's, there in 1996. The first talk for 1998, I'll never forget. Because it was given by a priest visiting from England. And I'm sitting at the back of the room, and he used to be a chaplain in a hospital in England. And he used to notice a couple of women who used to eat, get gathered together, sit together at lunchtime. And he thought, mm, they're not eating. I wonder why they, when they come together, they never eat. And he thought, well, maybe they're doing something religious. Maybe they're abstaining. Maybe they're fasting. Maybe they're Catholic. So he had enough gumption as a Catholic priest, chaplain to that hospital, to go up to them one day and introduce themselves, say, hi, ladies, how are you? Uh, look, I'm a Catholic priest, as you can see. And I've noticed that you know, when you come together here for your chats at lunchtime, you never eat anything. Are you fasting? Are you Catholic perhaps? And they said, "Oh yes, we are fasting, but we're not Catholic. We're actually witches, and we offer up our fast for the intention of destroying Christian marriage. And when I heard that at the back of that room, I had the same reaction you had now, and I said to myself, "My goodness, firstly, how evil are these people? But secondly, how determined are they for their cause compared to how we are for our cause? That's what struck me. And this process, there, there is old Nick down there. He is the general coordinator of all this assault on our civilization, And there's more to come. Okay? Now, at least two Roman emperors, firstly Nero and then Elagabalus, were in same-sex unions. And 13 out of the first 14 Roman emperors are held to have been bisexual or exclusively homosexual. Nero illustrates that supporting same-sex marriage and persecuting Christianity seem to go hand in hand. Pornography. Who's been to Pompeii in Italy? Mount Vesuvius. And one thing they always want you to notice, and I was there in in, um, 2014, on a pilgrimage with staff, you know, when they've excavated what, and they're continuing with the excavations, and I find them very interesting, but they always want to highlight the pornography on the buildings, you know, and it's graphic, it's true. Sorry for saying this, but you know, phallic symbols, etc. and then they display all the particular toys that they had in that time. Um, And when you ever buy a book about Pompeii, they make sure they've got pictures in there, enough of these graphic sexual, sexualized scenes, etc. So Pompeii has the reputation of being like, oh, it was the, you know, King's Cross, it was the Las Vegas, it was the Sodom and Gomorrah of the Roman Empire. Okay, it stood out. Wow, it must have been the sex town where everyone went to. Actually, I disagree with that thesis. I don't agree that Pompeii was extraordinary in its time. I believe Pompeii was normative. It was the culture generally. It's just that we could, we've got the evidence from Pompeii because it was preserved under all the ash and whatever that buried it. What was happening in Pompeii was happening on a larger scale in the larger cities, particularly in Rome and elsewhere, throughout the Italian peninsula and, of course, other parts of the empire. Now, are we any different than Pompeii today? Yes, we are. We're a lot worse. (laughs) And I mean this. Listen to this stat. Pornography today, as we know, because of technology, is far more pervasive, far more graphic, far more depraved. In 2016, the analytics report of just one website, Pornhub, revealed that its videos were watched 92 billion times in 2016. 92 billion in the previous 12 months by 64 million daily visitors. That's 1% of the world's population, or roughly at that time, or 0.8 of 1% of the world's population each day. That works out at 12 and a half videos for every person on the planet. And if someone tried to watch all of the videos consecutively, and of course that's not something I promote, it would take you 524,641 consecutive years. Now that's just one website and its videos. Research confirms that porn addiction triggers brain activity akin to what is caused by drug addiction. It actually lowers libido in the long term. It exaggerates sexual expectations and damages a person's ability to form long-term committed relationships. Euthanasia. In Rome, someone desiring assisted suicide needed to fill out an application and submit it to the Roman Senate, providing valid reasons for it. If approved, the applicant would be given hemlock to drink. Why was this procedure necessary? Because they believed in the gods and they believed if you wanted a a good afterlife with the gods you had to go through a proper procedure and you know it wasn't as if suicide was encouraged but it was an accepted practice if you had good reasons for it and you had to establish those good reasons for it and if the senate approved it then the gods would rubber stamp it and you can commit your suicide on application and you'll have a good afterlife again sounds familiar well it's what's happening now in victoria and western australia the two states with uh, euthanasia laws. Suicide by application. Soon enough, if not already, we will have involuntary suicide with no application required. Postmodern denial of truth. I've been on postmodernism recently because I think it's a problem that uh, we don't yet realise the extent of it. Postmodernism denies truth truth. Now, when we lived in an age of faith, we happily believed in things on faith, even though we could not necessarily prove it from a rational perspective, with evidence. Modernism came, particularly from the Enlightenment, so-called Enlightenment, and said, I'm not going to believe in anything unless I can prove it, empirically test it. So it's, I'll accept things based on reason, but not on faith. Postmodernism doesn't throw out faith because it's already been thrown out, it throws out reason. Postmodernism says we don't have truth. There is no truth. And even if there was truth, we cannot know it, we can't discover it. Our senses are unreliable, our intellect is unreliable. Does this sound familiar? There's this fellow named Pontius Pilate who said in front of another fellow, Quid es veritas? What is truth? He was invested with the Cynic philosophy, would call it scepticism today. There is no truth. Your truth is your truth, but not necessarily my truth. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. This far more widespread than we think. Furthermore, there's no okay. There's no objective truth. You construct your own truth. There's no objective morality, so there's no right or wrong. And who are you to judge? There's no natural law. There's no metanarrative. There's no story anymore, a life story that gives meaning and purpose and ultimate destiny that the Judeo-Christian metanarrative does. When you are a person of faith, we're Catholics here, we believe in something, someone, God, Jesus. The Jesus story is a meta-narrative story. It goes back to original sin, Adam and Eve. Then we go through the calling of Abraham, the patriarchs, and Moses, and the Exodus, and and the judges, and, and then the prophets, and the kings, and we're waiting for the Messiah, and the Messiah comes, and he sends forth the apostles, and there's a church, and it teaches we have an ultimate purpose in this life and a destiny in the next. That gives meaning to life. That gives me purpose. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what motivates me to do things when I could do other things. So life for me is not just eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow I die. Because tomorrow when I die, I've got another more perfect life I'm looking forward to. We've lost that. Young people don't have that meta-narrative anymore. They don't have their purpose. We wonder why in affluent societies, our suicide rates are so high. Because we don't have meaning. We don't have purpose. When you don't have meaning, you don't have purpose, you're also more vulnerable to anxiety, to depression. That's how modern society is wondering what's gone wrong. I tell you what's gone wrong. You knocked off the king off his throne, you put yourself on the throne, you worship yourself and you wonder why you've got problems. And this all began, this revolt, this post-modernist revolt is really just another phase of the One Revolution. Modernist revolution evolves into the postmodernist revolution. It goes back to really the, the, the revolt against St. Thomas Aquinas' realist philosophy of the Middle Ages. All these other philosophies that come post St. Thomas, particularly in the Enlightenment, are anti Thomistic philosophies. There was one great teacher in Australia, Dr. Woodbrief started the Aquinas Academy in, the, in 1945, and I was taught by his disciples in the 1990s. And Dr Woodby once said, you know, there's St Thomas Aquinas and there's rubbish. <laughs> and I thought at the time when I first heard that, and no, a bit radical, but I actually, I accept that now. There's St Thomas Aquinas and there's rubbish. Because the rubbish, especially from the so-called Enlightenment, is what has produced the mess we're in now. And don't accept this term enlightenment. It's the indarkenment. We are in dark these are the dark ages. The dark ages of contraception, abortion, divorce, euthanasia, infanticide, the destruction of the family, the destruction of society, declining birth rates, uh, the, the, the denial of truth. Aimlessness, anxiety, depression, suicide. These are the dark ages. I assure you. Religious persecution. The Roman Empire inflicted 10 great persecutions upon Christianity, beginning with Nero in the year 64 and ending with, well, roughly ending with, um, the Diocletian, Galerius, Maxentius persecution of 303 to 312. Over a million Christians died as martyrs in this period, mostly in the Eastern Empire. Currently, we are witnessing the accumulating clouds of persecution, I have no doubt about it. We still call ourselves a democracy. We claim to have freedom of speech. We claim that everyone has the right to express their opinion, to vote for their politicians. But this is now fiction. This revolutionary process I'm outlining now is the most intolerant of revolutions. If you want to speak out and put forward in the public realm a Catholic Christian perspective on all these issues, you'll be hunted down, shouted down, mocked, ridiculed. Exactly right. Now look, if we refuse to provide health care cover to employees so they could access abortion and contraception, as mandated by the Obama Administration in the United States, we are fined or closed down. If we do not bake cakes for same-sex marriages, we are fined or imprisoned and our businesses boycotted and closed down. If we protest outside abortion clinics, we will be fined, arrested, put, in, put on trial and imprisoned. If we quote St. Paul against same-sex activity or marriage, we can no longer play football. And then we claim we are all living in a free society to express, hold our own, our own opinions and to express them in public. This is no longer the case. I am rather pessimistic here. I believe that these uh, accumulating clouds of persecution are going to get bigger and darker. And and this is a white persecution to choke us off and to eventually, like Cardinal Pell, end up in jail and even worse, if possible. Um, You know, in the Roman Empire, you could be arrested, put on trial and executed. And by the way, I I did a study on St Justin Martyr. His trial of himself and his seven students took approximately four minutes. And then they'll all beheaded. And you'll put to death on what evidence? You are a Christian, you hold the name Christian, you refuse to deny this Christ. That's enough evidence. Now, this is the future, this is the evidence you need for the upcoming future persecution to be guaranteed arrest, trial, imprisonment, or even worse. I'm going to go around one day and say the following. In God's plan for life and love, sex is only meant to be between a man and a woman. In the context of a marriage that is freely entered into, exclusive to all others, lasts until death and is naturally open to life. Only this is from God. Only this is moral. Now, I can only imagine how many jobs in the future people will be sacked from. How many arrests, trials, and imprisonments, and even worse, will come to anyone in the future who makes a statement such as that? Where will this end? Our modern, progressive, liberated, materially wealthy, politically correct, post truth society is in a death spiral an irreversible death spiral. It's terminal. It is going to die. Pat Buchanan was correct in two thousand and six, and is more correct now. We are in the death throes of civilization. What will come next? I don't know. Islam is increasing in the West because they are immune themselves more against this revolutionary process. The Western world is dying and the white Anglo-Saxon Celtic nations will disappear first. And those parts of the church, which are Anglo-Saxon Celtic, will disappear first. Look at what the Saxons are doing to themselves now in Germany. Look at, that, at this so-called permanent synod in Germany, where the leaders of the church there are the least Catholics I know of, who are systematically trying to rewrite all aspects of moral theology and overturn the church's perennial teachings, scripture, apostolic tradition, church fathers, saints, heroes, martyrs, overthrow all that and completely imbibe and swallow the sexual revolution and put that out there now as the new Christianity, the new Catholicism for the 21st century. All they're doing in that synod, is adding more nails to their own coffin, I assure you. Why is the Western world dying? Because we are fornicating, contracepting, sterilising, aborting, adulterating, divorcing, sodomising and euthanizing ourselves into extinction. And that process is irreversible. The only way to reverse that is personal conversion. Is there a a better solution than personal conversion? I don't know of one. I see none. I think only God can save our civilization. The West will eventually disappear as the Western Roman Empire did, imploding and replaced by new peoples, new peoples not infected by the diabolical disorientation of our time. We are living in a diabolical disorientation. We are not thinking anymore. If we do think, we're not thinking straight anymore. I just if I search for explanations or solutions, I can only focus on myself and my own family and the friends in the circles I operate. All I can suggest is that each one of us, in the meantime, remain steadfast in fidelity and raise our children and loved ones and friends in the same fidelity, receiving the Eucharist daily if necessary. And like St. Louis de Montfort, holding the crucifix in one hand and the rosary in the other, and St. Louis de Montfort... On his deathbed got his last temptation. A great saint of the early 18th century who operated in northwest France preaching. He'd never ride a horse. He'd only walk from place to place. as part of his penance. I think it was his preaching that prepared that part of France to to be the most resistant against the French Revolution that broke out near the end of that same century. I'm sure sure St. Louis de Montfort did great damage to the kingdom of Satan in this world in his lifetime. And the devil tried relentlessly to to defeat him, even at the end. On his deathbed, while he's praying, he had a vision of the devil for the last time. It was a terrifying vision. He reeled backwards in his bed, up up against the bedmast. And then he said, he got a grace, he was at peace again, and he said, I am not afraid. I stand between Jesus and Mary. Yes, in this frightful struggle of our times, we stand between Jesus and Mary. and remain unafraid and leave the rest to God. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation brought to you by Perusia. Perusia is an Australian-based apostolate bringing you the best in Catholic formation resources. Visit the website at www.perusiamedia.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.